This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 145 of The Freelancer Show. This week, our panel is myself, I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that's Neil Ford. Hello. Neil, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Absolutely. I'm Neil Ford. I am a director and software architect and meme wrangler for ThoughtWorks, which is an international consultancy, and they have me on the road. I almost made a moonshot last year. It's almost, it's about 240,000 miles to the moon, and I flew about 215,000 miles last year, so I suspect that's why you want to talk to me about this. Yeah. So (laughs) you mentioned, I think it was on iFreaks. It might have been, no, I don't think we've had you on Ruby Rogues yet. It was JavaScript. JavaScript yep. Jabber? Yep, yep. Oh, okay. I can't keep them straight. I knew we had you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, you mentioned that you've been a traveling consultant for a while. That is correct. More, just about 10 years exactly. My anniversary with ThoughtWorks comes up in uh, uh, April of this year, and I was actually a traveling consultant before that, so I've been doing this for a while. It's not my first rodeo. Ah. So when you say traveling consultant, what do you generally mean? Well, I have actually quite an unusual role within ThoughtWorks. I travel to client sites, and that could be anywhere, mostly in the U.S., but also Canada and the rest of the world. But I also speak at a ton of conferences. That's another part of my job at ThoughtWorks. And that gets me traveling literally to all the major cities in the U.S. once a year and a lot of international travel. Uh, this last year, I've been to China. I've been to Australia a bunch of times. So, uh Part of it is being part of an international consultancy, and part of it is I love traveling new places, and speaking at conferences is a great excuse to go travel places you've never been before. Very cool. What's the most exotic place you've traveled to? Well, I traveled to two new places this last year, and one of the side effects of having been doing this for a while is I get to go to a lot of cool places, but I tend to go to the same places over and over again, so I go to London like six times a year. So, you know, London's an awesome place, but, you know, you get a, it gets some familiarity with it. Uh, this last year, I went to Tallinn, Estonia for the first time, which is the northernmost of the Baltic states, just uh, below Finland, and uh, Hesife, Brazil, which is kind of unknown in the states. It's right on the equator. If you look at Brazil and the part that kind of juts out and points toward Africa, it's just below that, so it's very close to the equator, so it's quite a resorty kind of place. But we don't really know about it here because no one there speaks English. They all speak Portuguese. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a bunch of offices in Brazil, and we have an office in Hesife, and I was there for uh, uh, ThoughtWorks meetings, and they mostly kind of shuttled us around. 
so we would have someone for um, English speaking. And Tallinn was also very cool. It's a very old place. We got to see the uh, the old city, including where the moat used to be and the old city gates. And uh, I've actually uh, got a really nice, very limited but useful travel tip to anyone who's traveling to Tallinn, Estonia, as a way to kind of kick off the tips and, and things I'm going to provide today. Uh, as I was in my hotel room, I could see there was a giant ferry that goes from Tallinn to Finland, which is just across the body of water there. And I mentioned that to one of the people in Tallinn, and they said, you'd never want to take that ferry. And I said, why? And he said, well, it turns out that liquor is much cheaper in Tallinn than it is in Finland. So a lot of blue-collar Finnish workers hop on the ferry on Friday afternoon and come to Tallinn and get a whole bunch of booze and then get drunk all the way back home. So apparently it's not a fun place to be. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so that I like going to places like that, you know, places I've never been before that have, you know, some sort of exoticness to them. But I've been to China, and that's a pretty funky place to go as a Westerner because, you know, any place you go where they just don't speak English at all. You know, India, mm -hmm. pretty much everybody you bump into speaks English. And most of Northern Europe, you can easily find people who can speak broken English. But when you go to places like China or Brazil, it's a much starker and it's a much harder. The logistics are much harder to deal with. So I guess that qualifies as exotic in my head. Two things probably. No one speaks English. And you have to be careful about water. Like drinking water, you mean? Drinking water, but you also have to be careful about things uh, like salads and restaurants that they might have washed off with tap water. Most of the places in the big cities in India, like Bangalore, that cater to Westerners actually use filtered water throughout, just to keep that attempt down. But actually, going to India picked up one of my persistent habits. I'm a big drinker of a sparkling water or club soda. And I first started doing that in India and just sort of got used to it. And there's a really good reason to do that in India. And the reason is you can't fake bubbles. In India, you will see people selling bottled water, like in plastic uh -huh. bottles, but there is a not too uncommon incident of people taking plastic bottles and filling them with uh, tap water and then selling them for a couple of rupees uh, as a way to make money. But nobody bothers to carbonate that stuff. So if you've got carbonated water, you're pretty sure it's actually mineral water. So that's a, actually a good tip if you're traveling somewhere where you doubt the water. Drink sparkling water everywhere with no ice, and you've got a really good confidence that you're getting actual mineral water and not something from a tap accidentally. Yeah, a funny story with that. I was a missionary in Italy for the Mormon Church, and my parents came out to pick me up when my mission was over. And most people there, they, you know, they drink the sparkling water. And if you haven't had it, it has kind of a funny aftertaste to it. And uh, so my parents, they flew into Rome and they drove up to where I was, which was just west of Venice. And on their way up, they stopped at a, a convenience store and they picked up some water because they were thirsty. And my, my mom took a, because she was really thirsty, took a big old swig of this carbonated water and then spat it out all over the ground and went back into the convenience store. And she's trying to communicate with them, this water's rotten. <laughs> it's spoiled. And uh, so finally they kind of get the gist and they're like, oh, gas, gas. <laughs> and she's like, no gas. And then they pointed her to the other water. But yeah. Yep. That's one of the things I've learned to order in lots of different languages is uh, sparkling water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so yeah, it does have a little bit of an aftertaste, but that's an interesting idea I never thought of. My niece actually calls it spicy water. So spicy we normally call it spicy water around here. There you go. <laughs> that's funny. So to be kind of a, a traveling consultant, do you have to kind of work for a company like yours? 
well, there, or are there other ways to do that outside of a company setting? Uh, there's certainly a lot of traveling consultants are just pure freelancers that, uh, in fact, if you look at the traveling conference series, the No Fluff Just Stuff conference series, which is a big deal, uh, well-known conference series in the Java world, mm-hmm. virtually every, I speak on that conference series, but virtually everyone there is just an independent consultant who travels on a regular basis to, to work on gigs. So any big consultancy uh, will tend to do that, uh, and not just software consultancy, you know, big financial consultancies like McKinsey and mm-hmm. PricewaterhouseCoopers, those guys are always on the road. They tend to have to dress a nicer than software consultants do. So <laughs> the financial consultants probably have to wear a suit all the time and we can get by with jeans in most cases. <laughs> yeah, I have a tendency to tell my uh, clients that I'm not really willing to travel. And so I'm, I'm wondering, am I missing out on something here or? Well, a lot of times, you know, depending on the kinds of things that you specialize in, if you have a, a real hyper-specialization around something, um, very frequently you can get really high hourly rates for it, but you have to travel to where the work is. The reason I'm not independent, I could actually probably make more money as an independent, but uh, there, there are two reasons. I really like agile software development, and particularly things like pair programming and some of those in- kinds of engineering practices. And if you're an independent consultant, nobody will hire you to do things like pair programming. And I, I don't like the business side of software, like chasing invoices and, you know, drumming up business and all that other sort of stuff. So I'd rather somebody else handle all that and just let me deal with the geeky, fun stuff, the technical stuff that yeah. uh, doesn't sap the life out of me like all that uh, logistical stuff does. Yeah, the invoicing and stuff is definitely less fun, I think. But what happened, what has happened over time since I've been doing this for the better part of 15 years now is I've built up a lot of strong opinions and a bunch of little tricks and hacks and other sorts of things for our travelers. I've actually thought about writing all these things down in a book, but the problem is it's not a great broad audience. And in particular, I almost immediately lop off half of the population because women have much harder time pulling off some of these packing tricks and other things that I'm going to talk about than men do. Uh, men can pretty easily get by with two pairs of shoes in most situations, but that's much tougher for women and they have to have more space. So uh, that's why I haven't tried to write any these things down because it's, I think it's a self-limiting kind of list. Yeah. It, it really just it, depends on what, who you are and what you feel like you have to have. Yeah, but there's some really great tips that just about everybody can apply, particularly if you're doing a regular amount of traveling. So let me talk about a couple of, what I call enablers to make a lot of other thing possible. I'm a big, big advocate of never checking bags. There are only two kinds of bags in your hand or lost. And so if you, if you always carry on, if you commit yourself to always carrying on, you get a huge number of advantages. One is inevitably, if you travel a lot, there are going to be travel disruptions and canceled flights at the last minute and all those sorts of things. And every time that's ever happened to me, one of the first things the the gate agent asked me uh, with a sad look on their face is, did you check any bags? And when you say no, they brighten up because all their options just got much better and they've got a much easier job. So it allows you to be way more agile about dealing with interruptions. You never get lost luggage. You don't have to wait on luggage. This is one of those things if you go on vacation, you know, three times a year or something, you know, waiting for check bags is not a big deal. But if you're doing that two or three times a week, that time starts adding up in a big hurry. I'm sure you saw the movie, or if you haven't, it's worth seeing the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney, which is about a traveling road warrior. 
It's not a bad movie, although I've got a much better suitcase than that dude had in that movie. But he does an analysis at one point about wasted time waiting for baggage at baggage claim. And he's right. It's, a, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes at a pop. And that, that amount of time adds up over time. Yeah, I've had the fortune, misfortune, where, yeah, I've had bags lost just traveling to conferences and things. And so, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. Yep. If it doesn't fit into my backpack or my... I have a rolling duffel bag. If it doesn't fit in one of those two things, it doesn't go because yep. and so it's a hassle. You can actually make that work. So when I travel, I have one rolling carry-on bag that is exactly the size of an overhead compartment. Uh, you can go to the airline's website and find out their official dimensions for their overheads, and they're all about the same, and get a really good suitcase. I've actually found a fantastic suitcase. I'm not getting paid for them, although I probably should. The Eagle Creek Tarmac 22 is the suitcase I travel. I actually own several of these things because they are awesome. They're exactly the shape of an overhead bin. And the genius thing about this suitcase is that it's very rigid in its height, but it's very flexible in its width. We call this the TARDIS suitcase because it's bigger inside than it is outside. <laughs> because what happens is you can keep cramming stuff in it and it'll just bulge on the sides, but it never gets too tall to fit in the overhead because their genius is observing that the limiting factor in an overhead bin is the height, not the width. Right. So I carry that Tarmac 22 and my backpack all the time is the only two things that I travel with. And I've gone for more than a month with just those two things. But to be able to do that, you've got to have some other kinds of things in uh, tow as well. So when you travel as much as I do, it actually behooves you to have a completely separate wardrobe that is specialized travel stuff. So, for example, I get a website like Travelsmith is a really great place to find this kind of stuff. Uh, you can get underwear, both T-shirts and all kinds of underclothes that are made out of this polyester wicking material. And so the idea is if you're going somewhere for three weeks, so you don't carry three weeks worth of underwear, you carry three pairs of these travel underwear. Tide and other manufacturers make these sink size packets. Now one packet is a sink's worth of laundry. So the trick is you get to a hotel and you can wash this stuff out. And because it's made out of this quick drying material, you wash it out and hang it up and it's dry two hours later. So depending on how aggressive you are, I know people who literally travel with two pairs just so that, you know, they've always got a pair that they can wear and one that, that you know, is in process. That's a little cumbersome for me because the fewer pairs you have, the more often you have to do sink laundry. So I typically carry three or four, maybe five pairs with me, just cut down on the amount of sink laundry I have to do. And so that means you're now sustainable for the entire trip on things like underclothes. You can also buy travel shirts at places like Travelsmith that are also that same quick drying material. And you can get pants and other stuff, too. The trickiest one of these is socks. And the trick I use for socks is that you can buy sock liners. These are typically used by outdoorsmen, hikers, and folks like that. They're real thin, like polyester or silk. And they actually wick moisture much better than cotton or wool socks do. So you put sock liners on and then put your socks over them. And virtually all the moisture ends up in the sock liner. So you can use the same pair of socks over and over and over again without washing those because they take a long time to dry. The other thing I'm a giant fan of, and I've become addicted to these things over the last few years, Travelsmith sells a bunch of these, and Enro is one of the brands, and these are these cotton shirts that are chemically treated to never need ironing. 
They actually react to your body heat. So you can take one of these things that is just literally wadded up in a ball in your suitcase and put it on your back, and 10 minutes later, it looks like it came out of a professional dry cleaner. These no things kidding. are awesome. The technology has gotten so good on these cotton shirts. That's all I ever wear. And people comment on these shirts sometimes like, wow, that shirt looks really, you know, it looks pressed and starched and I didn't do anything with it except put it on. This chemical will wear out after like 20 or 30 or 40 washings, but it lasts for a really long time. So I just try to uh, don't overwash them too much. And those things are great. So I actually travel with those quite a lot because it looks really good. It looks really professional, but you don't have to do anything like, you know, uh, wash it or anything crazy like that. The real trick on getting quick dry pants is trying to find some that don't look like you're about to hitchhike up the side of a mountain, you know, with giant cargo pockets and, you know, weird zippers and that kind of stuff. But increasingly, you can get actual pants that look like regular pants that are this, this travel stuff. Huh. So I've got travel underclothes, I've got a few pairs of pants, and I've got uh, usually, if it's a really long trip, a mix of these really nice cotton shirts and regular travel shirts. I have a pair of comfortable walking, but, you know, close enough to dress shoes, and then I wear a pair of sneakers. And then I carry, the other advantage of doing things like sink laundry is that I can carry a single set of exercise clothes. What I tend to do is exercise in them once and then just rinse them out in the sink. Uh And when you're rinsing stuff in the sink, this is something I learned recently that a lot of people who do proper sink laundry probably know. But if you're washing something out in the sink, it's much better to fill the basin with water and put the garments in there and squish them around rather than just holding them under running water because a lot more will come out of it. So I just tend to wash them out one day, and then the second day I'll actually use soap. And so one pair of exercise clothes can last me indefinitely as well, even if you're a really dedicated everyday kind of exerciser. So those are two big enablers, the ability to do sink laundry. In fact, one of the things I carry with me is a kind of a flat rubber stopper in my suitcase in case the stopper in the sink in the hotel is broken or doesn't work or something like that. That and always just having your carry-on bag. Here's actually a really good tip. In most U.S. carriers, don't really sweat too much the weight of your carry-on bag. It's so rare in the U.S. for anybody to care about that. But in a lot of European countries, and especially in India, they care about that a lot. And they have really, really ridiculous restrictions, like 8 kilograms for your carry-on bag, which is about 15 or 16 pounds, which is just nuts. You can't get Uh anything useful in there. But here's the trick. If you're carrying a rolling suitcase and a backpack, put all the heavy stuff in the backpack because they never weigh that. They always weigh the rolling bag, but they never weigh the backpack. And so take all your heavy electronics and all that junk and cram it in your backpack just so that you can check in for the flight. Then as soon as you walk away from the counter, redistribute all that weight between the two bags. Both bags are going to go on the plane anyway, and it's ridiculous that they're being so bureaucratic about this weight stuff. So there are lots of little tricks you can play like that. And in fact, at one point in India, I showed up in exactly the situation. She said, your carry-on's too heavy. And so I literally just in front of her took some stuff out of the carry-on and stuffed it into my backpack, put my backpack on and weighed the carry-on. She said, okay, you're good. Took the bag back (laughs) off, stuffed the same stuff back into it, and then rolled to my gate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So always put the heaviest stuff in your backpack if you're in that situation, because they never check the backpack. They always just check the rolling carry-on that looks like it's going to be the heavier bag. Well, it burns less gas to fly with it in your backpack. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So 
I'm wondering, you said that you travel, uh, you know, not just for conferences, but for actual gigs that you're working. You know, what kinds of jobs do you have to travel for versus maybe being able to work remote on? Well, and this is one of those things that's different in different parts of the world. Most computer consultants in the U.S. still have to travel because clients want to smell your breath in the mornings for whatever reason. We still do very little remote work, and it's actually harder for us to do remote work because we are so collaborative because all the stuff we do is around agile software development. So that kind of entails traveling, you know, to put a team together. Because very frequently, we, you know, if we have a project that's going in, like Atlanta, which we have an office here in Atlanta, but there'll be a handful of people that come to that project from Chicago or from Dallas or somewhere like that just because of a particular skill set or staffing restrictions or something like that. So we try as a company really hard to keep people in their home city, but we also try to terrify them before they're hired that, hey, you know, we can't guarantee it, but you may end up being flying to Des Moines every week. <laughs> you know, that's just part of the uh, occupational hazard. Right. That's something that I totally understand, and I've seen in a couple of different things, but, you know, for the most part, yeah, I prefer to stay home, and, you know, oh, yeah, so I make, I make my clients pay for me to travel when I travel, and a lot, that cuts down on it quite a bit. Yep. Our clients are all paying time and expenses, and including, like, corporate apartments and all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. They want to see our smiling faces, but uh, we try to cut that down as much as possible. And there are some technology communities that have actually gotten away with more remote work just because of a scarcity of talent, like Ruby, for example. There are a lot of Ruby developers who now work from home just because it got so tight getting Ruby developers there for a while. People were willing to loosen the restrictions on whether they'll like to work at home or not. Yeah, it's or maybe work at home part time and you know travel you know every other week or something like that. We have a few projects to do that. One of the things that we try to do to mitigate the travel footprint, we as a company we realize that's the worst part of the job, and so we don't try to be cheap about you know crappy hotels or things like that. But we also try as much as possible to do four ten hour days rather than five eight hour days. Mm-hmm. And that way you're away from home less time. That actually cuts down on some of the expense for the traveling for the client because it's one less night of hotel. So that works really well. A lot of our projects, and particularly like me, I live in Atlanta. We have direct flights everywhere. So in many cases, I've been able to take a super early flight on Monday and work late on Monday night and then 10 hours Tuesday, Wednesday, and then be able to fly home late Thursday and basically have a three-day weekend every week. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I kind of like that approach too. I have traveled a few times for clients. Once when I was in college, you know, and they paid for my hotel and everything. And then I had one client that they wanted me to come out for a week or two weeks at the beginning of the contract. So they paid to put me up in a hotel and blah, 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 right? Um, mm-hmm. And then I just worked from home the rest of the time. But yeah, I mean, you know, there are some some situations where you definitely, you know, they want to have you on site. They want to meet in person. And to be honest, it really does help the rapport to be able to well, sit no down doubt. with somebody. Alistair Coburn actually did some really interesting analysis of this in the Agile space about the temperature of communication channels. He does a really interesting analysis that shows that face-to-face communication in front of a whiteboard is the richest kind of communication you could have about a technical subject. And then as soon as you start introducing, you know, levels of indirection, even video and, and audio, you know, that the richness of that communication channel falls a lot. So it is a really good thing to be face-to-face, even if it's not all the time. I think being face-to-face is really important. And particularly for one of the things we do are distributed projects where some people be in India and some be in the U.S. And it's really tough getting to know people as a disembodied voice over a phone. So I was on a project at one point. It was Chicago, New York, and Bangalore. 
And I was the tech lead on the project, and the guy who was kind of second in command was this guy named Zach. And Zach was just a really, really passionate software developer. But the only exposure anyone in India had to him was the two two-hour phone calls that we had between the technical team every week. And everybody in India thought Zach was an asshole because he was really, you know, adamant about quality, and it seemed like he was always down on everybody. In fact, when I went to India, they had pictures of everyone on the wall so that you know you needed people's faces, and they had to. Def- Based Zach's picture with like devil horns and you know beard and all that stuff. But oh, then wow. Zach went over there as part of his rotation because we like to rotate people around, and they had a chance to have dinner with Zach and hang out with him in non-conference call situations. And he became everyone's best friend over there. In fact, he got a lot of really useful stuff done over there because they realized. Oh, this guy's not an asshole. He's just really, really passionate about this. And they were only getting one part of that channel through that speakerphone. So, you know, occasional face-to-face meetings is really, really important because, you know, we're humans are intensely social creatures, so much so that the worst punishment in prison is solitary confinement. Think about that for a second. The worst punishment when you're amongst all the criminals is to be separated from all the criminals. That's how social we are. And there are a lot of social cues and that sort of stuff that uh, kick in when you're face-to-face that you just can't replicate otherwise. Yep. So as far as travel goes, do you have any tips or tricks as far as, you know, choosing what time to fly or, you know, picking the hotel to stay in and all that stuff? Yep. So pick a chain and be loyal to it so that you can start gathering points. Same for an airline. Uh, One of my colleagues at one point did a really deep analysis over what kind of bang for the buck do you get? You know, is it you get an airline credit card so that you get extra miles or hotel credit card? Which chains do best, et cetera? And this analysis is a few years old, but the chain that he picked, I got a credit card for that chain. And every time I pay for my hotel, I pay with that credit card, which means you get double the points you normally would. And then the company reimburses me for it. So I can really double down on points and I try to stay as loyal as possible to this hotel chain, which is not always possible, but you know, it's not a bad idea to try to do that. Yeah, I have to say though, when I go to conferences though, it's so much more convenient to stay in the hotel the conference is in. Well, absolutely. And and most of the time, you're not even going to get points for that anyway, even if it is your hotel because you're not paying for it. So that's the other thing about hotels. Who pays for the hotel gets the points, whereas on airlines, who rides on the seat gets points. Yeah. Some conferences will let you pay for the room and then get reimbursed by the conference organizer if you're trying to collect points. I actually worked that out with several conference organizers, and they're okay with that. Could have to pay it one way or the other, whether they pay you or pay the hotel directly. I don't really care. In terms of flight times, if you absolutely positively you want to make sure you get there, pick either the first flight in the morning or the last flight at night because every airline has a schedule. And so even if they cancel a bunch of the intermediate flights, they have to fly the last flight of the night because the next morning that plane's supposed to be somewhere to start the next day's schedule. Ah. Don't ever take the next to last flight because they'll cancel that one in a heartbeat and just push everybody into the last flight. But they can't cancel that last flight without doing a bunch of logistical nonsense. And by the same token, take the first flight in the morning because that plane has sat there all night. So you don't have to worry about an incoming flight being delayed. I gotcha. And then if they cancel it, then, you know, they have the whole day to move you through to get you out there. In general, try to fly earlier in the day rather than later in the day because you've got a lot more flexibility when shit hits the fan. (laughs) So uh, do you usually fly out the day before then? 
I try to, yeah. I try to fly out late the day before on most of the things that I can and spend the night there and then get up the next morning and not worry about all the, you know, even if you're traveling somewhere on the day of, you know, all the hecticness of the travel and you have to get up super early and then your delays cause versus just getting there and getting, you know, reasonable night's sleep and getting up the next morning and being ready to, ready to sink into it. Here's another really useful tip that I've told a bunch of people. Have you ever noticed when you go to an airplane and get settled in, you get kind of drowsy? Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. The ventilation system on airplanes is driven by the engines. So when you're in the air, the engine is actually driving most of the ventilation system. When they're on the ground, they plug a big fat hose up to the plane, which runs the ventilation system, but at a much lower volume of air. Uh, You'll notice this sometimes when they crank the engines on, and then all of a sudden the the overhead vents will get really excited and start really uh, producing air. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens is when they board a plane, as more and more people get on the plane, the level of carbon dioxide builds up on the plane. It's not dangerous in any way, but it will make you drowsy. And that's why when you get on the plane and everybody starts getting on the plane, everybody starts getting drowsy. This is what I refer to as the carbon dioxide nap. I leverage this and take advantage of it. When I get on the plane, I, I normally get on the plane first because I've got status and, you know, first or near the front. Right. And I'll sit there and read or whatever. As soon as I start noticing I get drowsy, I'll try to just drift off to sleep. That's another thing I can do is I can sleep on airplanes like a champion. In fact, I can sometimes <laughs> sleep on a plane and taking off doesn't even wake me up. But most of the time what happens is I'll take the carbon dioxide nap. And then as soon as you hear the two chimes that indicates you're at 10,000 feet, that usually wakes me up. And by that time, the air quality is great. And now I can, you know, get out my laptop or my iPad or my book reader or whatever. So I say leverage that carbon dioxide nap. That's why airlines have a rule that they can't keep you on the tarmac for more than like three hours. Because if they did, everybody on the plane would get a splitting headache because the air mix is not right. Huh. Didn't know that either. (laughs) So find out all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) So one other thing that I'm curious about, and you talked a lot about like, you know, different clothes you can buy. By the way, I looked at Travelsmith and a lot of the stuff on there is kind of pricey, but I guess you're paying for specialty stuff that does what you need, right? All travel stuff is more expensive than regular stuff, but a lot of it's pretty high quality. You know, the manufacturers like Columbia and Enro. You can also go to REI or like a sporting store like that, and they also have a lot of that travel clothes kind of stuff. But this is why I say you really want two wardrobes. I don't wear that travel stuff all the time. I reserve it for trips that require that. So I really have kind of two wardrobes, which is kind of hard to justify if you don't travel that much. But once you hit a certain level, having two of things. So I have two electric razors so that I have a suitcase one and a home one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have four toothbrushes. So I have extra toothbrushes so with a lot of duplication. I have more than one of those suitcases because they have a great policy. If anything ever happens to it, you can ship it to them and they'll repair it and ship it back to you. But the problem is I ended up breaking one, and then while it was gone, I needed another one, so I ended up buying another one. So now I have a spare one in case I break one. I've always got one that's active. Do you have any other tips for for getting more into the suitcase? Because that's not, you know, I'll pack what I need to get out there. And, you know, usually my suitcase is kind of full, and then on the way back, you know, I want to buy some stuff for my kids and blah, 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 and... One of the things you can do for in that situation is a lot of travel stores still these get a collapsible duffel bag and put mm-hmm. it in the bag on the way out and then just have an extra carry on on the way back with all the extra stuff. One of the nice things about that slinky travel stuff is it's actually less bulky than cotton because it's made out of polyester typically. But the very best thing you can do, and this is awesome, I do this all the time, this is a magic trick. 
go to an REI or container store probably has these and get those vacuum bags, Mm -hmm. not the ones you have to hook a vacuum up to, but you just put it in and it's like a giant Ziploc bag that's really thick and you can roll it and squeeze all the air out. Because it turns out the bulkiest thing in your suitcase is air. Mm. If you can get rid of all that air between all those garments, you can get a whole lot more stuff in there. I will be willing to bet you can get a third more stuff in your suitcase if you'll take two or three of those bags and put, you know, like all your undergarments and all that stuff, put them in there and roll them up really tight and then strategically put them in the bag. Uh, you'll get a lot more in there, I'll bet. I'm a big fan of those things, and you can put a lot of stuff in a suitcase with those uh, compression bags. Yep. Another thing that I do when I get to the hotel, there are a couple of uh, little hacks. One is a lot of times you'll end up in a room with an adjoining door. And even if you're not adjoining that door and, you know, the way those work is they both have doorknobs. So, you know, both people have to turn their key before it opens up. Right. I'm always paranoid about those things. And so I always put my suitcase right in front of that door. You know, they always have a little suitcase rack there. Uh I always put my suitcase directly in front of it so that somebody did manage to stumble their way through that door. They might trip over my suitcase. But here's the best trick I know of in hotels. And I discovered this recently, and this was a revelation for me. It's a small thing, which is important. So really nice hotel chains have glass glasses in the bathroom, but less expensive hotel chains have paper cups or styrofoam cups. Mm -hmm. problem with styrofoam cups is if you put your toothbrush in it, it's top heavy and it'll just tumble over. So it kind of sucks. Here's the trick. I saw somebody post a picture of this, flip the styrofoam cup over and punch a hole in the bottom of it with your toothbrush, and now you have a toothbrush holder. Oh, nice. It'll stand up in that uh, inverted cup in the hole that you punch, and you just pull it out and put it back in there until time to go, and now your uh, toothbrush won't fall over. (laughs) That's slick. Do you have a routine when you get into a hotel? I do. I unpack right away and, you know, get all my things in place. I've got a lot of junk in my backpack, which is basically my office. I don't really have an office. It's all in my backpack. I tend to listen to a podcast a lot when I'm uh, walking around in, you know, airports and stuff like that. So I'll listen to podcasts while I'm unpacking and, you know, getting all my stuff stowed away. I think that's the only way to really be sane as a traveler is, you know, kind of maintain your own normalcy. Mm-hmm. In places like hotel rooms, so you know where stuff is. One of my colleagues did what I consider a brilliant hack. She stays all the time on the Marriott Hotel chain. And the big chains like that, you can actually buy an astounding amount of their furniture and their bedding and all that stuff. And so what she did was decorated her apartment from the Marriott catalog. So now she always feels like she's at home. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Even when she's on the road, she feels like she's at home because everything in her life looks like a Marriott. (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. (laughs) That's pretty funny. So you actually unpack, and then what do you do? You just put your dirty laundry in your suitcase as you go, or...? What I do is uh, I always have one of those compression bags. Uh-huh. I put the dirty laundry in the compression bag. That, that's another useful thing for the compression bags. It lets you segregate clean versus dirty. Because mm-hmm. I'll have some trips, you know, it'll be two days here, and the bag allows you to keep those things separate and know exactly what's going on. Oh, in fact, yes. a, really good, a really good trick for that, every time you take off a bit of underclothes, if it's dirty, turn it inside out. Oh, yeah. That way, everything that's inside out is dirty and everything that's right side in is clean. And when I do sink laundry, as soon as I pull them out of the water, the rinsing water, I turn them back around right side, uh, not inside out because they're now clean. So in my world, anything that's inside out is dirty and anything that's right side in is clean. But I also segregate them by compression bags as well, typically. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm also wondering if you have some tricks. Um, when I travel, you know, my, my wife and my kids, we like to talk. So, you know, are, are there certain things that you find work better than others as far as like stay in touch with home? I think it's gotten much better now. Skype, of course, works really nicely. FaceTime is really huge, particularly if you have little kids who don't really understand a lot of stuff, you know, about travel or, you know, mm-hmm. why a parent is away. Getting FaceTime is really important because they can see you that, you know, that's a much stronger connection to little kids. So I think the, the real trick, particularly if you have time zone differences is, you know, scheduling times. So you can uh, talk to, uh, you know, your spouse or kids or whatever. Uh, it's easy to kind of let that slide, but I think it's worthwhile to uh, to try to stay pretty diligent at it because, you know, even though you're busy, you know, it's nice to be able to connect back to the, the real world. Yeah, I've, I've kind of found the same thing. You know, the hardest part of it is just scheduling time. And then, yeah, we do FaceTime. I mean, I have an iPhone. Um, my wife has an iPhone and an iPad. I have my MacBook that I, you know, take with me. And so just those things and being able to connect and kind of feel, you know, feel like uh, we can talk is a big deal. I I think seeing faces is a big deal. Uh, I think that's more than just an incremental improvement in that experience. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a handy thing. I'm trying to think of anything else that I can just think to ask. One of the things I keep in my bag all the time is a windbreaker and a hat and a small pair of gloves. Because you never tell when you might accidentally end up in some place. Well, San Francisco is a great example. I've bought now, I think, three sweatshirts in San Francisco in June because you think, oh, it's June. It's the middle of summer and you show up in San Francisco and it's freezing. There are several things that stay in my suitcase at all times. One is a little first aid kit, uh, which is never a bad thing to have around. Another thing is I was talking about doing sink laundry. The other thing I have are elastic clotheslines that you can stretch between, you know, two anchor points in your room and hang those wet clothes to dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those always stay in my uh, suitcase. My windbreaker, I've got a really nice general purpose windbreaker and then, you know, a hat and gloves that always stay in my uh, bag. And there's a bunch of stuff that, of course, stays in my, uh, my backpack all the time. Uh, you know, power adapters and all that stuff. And and I've also got a little uh, Bose mini speaker. Uh, you see a lot of these now that are like Bluetooth speakers. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of nice so that I can listen to music and things like that in hotel rooms without having to put on headphones. Headphones can be a little fatiguing after a while. So uh, it's nice. Uh, I've, uh, this is the, the equation for me is the benefit of having that worth the weight. It's always about the weight and the trade-off between weight. And so uh, I finally found a little Bluetooth speaker system that sounded good enough that I liked the sound of it, but was slight enough for me to put as part of my standard uh, travel rig. Very cool. As far as hotel Wi-Fi goes, do you find that certain chains have better Wi-Fi than others? Do you even trust the Wi-Fi? Do you just tether to your phone? How how do you handle all that? It's interesting. It's it's not about the chain. It's about the price of hotel within the chain. For example, Hamptons and Courtyard Inns, which are the mid-range price and a couple of big hotel chains, all have free Wi-Fi. But you get to the upper echelons like, you know, the Marriott or the Ritz or JW Marriott, and you have to pay for internet in those places. It's really more about the demographic of the traveler. The quality of Wi-Fi is wildly variable still all over the place. It's getting better and more consistent all over. Conferences still have a murderous time with Wi-Fi because, you know, every every geek that shows up for the conference has three or four IP addresses. They're slurping up and, you know, they're hammering on the Wi-Fi. So that's almost always bad. And in fact, I was at a conference not too long ago where they asked everybody to cut off their portable Wi-Fi is because it was clogging up all the channels that are possible for Wi-Fi. 
So nobody could get to the hotel Wi-Fi because everyone was clogging all the Wi-Fi channels with their own personal hotspot. So mm-hmm. even that's not a panacea. Wi-Fi used to be horrific in Europe, and it's gotten way better there now. And in Asia, the Wi-Fi you get in hotel rooms is better than what you can get in your house. I've also heard from some people that they don't trust the Wi-Fis in the hotels and stuff because they don't control it, blah, 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 sniffing. Yeah. It's then, set up by somebody who doesn't understand security. That's always certainly a possibility. And, you know, there are people who set up fake Wi-Fi hotspots in places. So it's not a bad idea to verify with the front desk exactly what the hotspot is because if you're staying in a, a Marriott, some nefarious person may have created a hotspot that says Marriott Guest when the actual hotspot is Nomadics or something, which is a provider for people like Marriott. So mm-hmm. make sure you know exactly what the provider is and, you know, the usual kind of uh, caveats apply about SSL and, and other sorts of stuff like that to make right. sure that nothing crazy like that's going on. Do you use a particular VPN or anything or? We have a VPN that we use, uh, within ThoughtWorks, uh, which is the Cisco VPN client. Mm-hmm. So. Nothing special or magical beyond that. Uh, you know, I try to be uh, pretty hygienic about that kind of stuff. I don't do anything in, like, you know, coffee shops or uh, or places like that. So I just try to keep my senses about me. But most hotels, I think, it, you know, the hassle of trying to spoof a hotel Wi-Fi, there are very few useful returns out of that for most people, I think. So from my experience, it's been pretty rare. Yeah, I haven't had any issues myself, but. You know, I'm always curious when I hear people just rave about, no, I would never trust that third yeah, party you know, or whatever. If you absolutely want security, never plug your computer into a network anywhere and you've got an air gap and you've got security. You know, everything else beyond that is some level of compromise. <laughs> yeah. You have to pick your, pick your level of compromise. <laughs> yeah. I've also, I have a kind of a portable Wi-Fi. It basically uses, so it has two antennas in it basically. And uh, one antenna connects to the Wi-Fi in the hotel. And then the other one is the one that all of my devices connect to. And uh, that helps in a couple of situations. One is that if they charge you per device, which mm-hmm. some of these places do, then they're only charging you for that one device. The yep. other thing that it helps with is that you can set up VPN settings on it. And so mm-hmm. depending on how complicated your VPN setup is on the other end, uh, you can push all of your information through you know, a VPN or a third-party proxy that encrypts the data. And so, I used to do this all the time with an airport express, and then several hotel, hotel chains started blocking those because they knew I was using it to get more than one device connected. But that's actually back when they cared about number of IP addresses. Every hotel now will give you four IP addresses for, for your room, at least, because they know you got a laptop and an iPad and an iPhone, so yeah. they're getting a little stingy about that. And in fact, if you got status in a hotel chain, I never pay for Wi-Fi because I have status in my, my favorite hotel chain, which is Marriott, and uh, Wi-Fi is always free for me. It's another perk of status. It's another you know reason you want to pick a hotel chain and stick with it as much as you can if you start getting perks. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I may have to go ahead and uh, do that with the hotel. I, I fly Delta just because they're you know the main carrier out of Salt Lake City. But Yep, I'm a Delta guy too since I'm based in Atlanta. So. Yep. I don't usually have enough miles to get, like, the completely preferred status, but, I mean, if nobody else has status on the flight, I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that's kind of the level I'm at, you know, some kind of medallion status or something. But anyway, yeah, it, it's made a lot of difference, and there have been a few times where I've actually gone to the airport, and I have the little red stripe on my boarding pass that says that I can go through the fast line. Yep, TSA pre-check is a wonderful thing. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. That's one other thing I, I'm kind of curious about. Do you dress differently on the days that you fly so that you don't have to like completely undress when you go through the security no. check? No. Most of the time now, Knockwood, I'm TSA pre-check, which means you don't have to take your belt off or take your shoes off or take your liquids out of your bags or any of that junk. So, uh, But I'm pretty slim down anyway, and I've got the routine down. I know exactly how to get my laptop and iPad and all that stuff out of my bag you know, as quickly as possible. And I tend not to put a lot of junk in my pockets, but I, I find... The discipline that's useful because I don't want a lot of junk in my pockets anyway. So uh, that, that helps keep the riffraff out of my pockets anyway, knowing that I have to travel a lot. Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. I have four things that I have in my pockets all the time. Well, five things except when I fly. And the, the fifth thing is a pocket knife, which I definitely don't take to the airport. Yeah, but, definitely uh, not. Another know. really useful travel thing you can get at a place like Travelsmith or REI are sheets of soap. They're a little, it's a little plastic thing, but it has these little fabric sheets that are soap. And so that if you run into a bathroom or something like that that doesn't have soap, you've got that in your bag. I always keep some of those in my backpack. Oh, that's kind of cool. So what kind of tech items do you take with you when you travel? Because, I mean, I, I take my laptop and I've got a whole bunch of stuff in my backpack, you know, power adapters and batteries and extra batteries and you know, thumb drives and stuff like that? Are there other things that, you know, people should consider taking that they wouldn't normally take well, when they just head out of the one house? One things that, that I've done a lot, and this is really makes it easier to get through security in places like Europe, is these little mesh travel bags that Eagle Creek makes. Mm-hmm. I tend to put all my adapters and wires and all that junk in Eagle Creek bags and put those in my backpack so that I can easily just pull those off en masse and dump them in trays. I have a lot of, you know, wires and adapters and that kind of junk, so I keep them all together in one place. I carry, of course, my laptop, and I have a bunch of presentation accoutrement, like, you know, a wireless clicker and that kind of stuff that just yeah. stays in my bag all the time. I have uh, the usual iPad and iPhone. I also carry an external charger that you can charge separately so that you can give more juice to an iPhone or mm-hmm. iPad. Uh, I have that little guy with me all the time. Nothing super out of the ordinary. I occasionally get weird looks from uh, airports at the volume of wires and you know, just electronic-related junk that I pull out of my backpack because I, have, you know, I travel with several external hard drives and junk like that. So I occasionally get uh, the evil eye from people. But hey, you know, <laughs> if I didn't have all that junk with me, then I, there'd be no reason for me to be traveling. So you know, it's not like it's an option. So they can just get over it. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. You know, they they ask me to pull. Well, what's that? You know, and what I'm pulling out is a big mess of wires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. Then then they're looking at me like, why do you need all this crap? And I'm just looking at them going, geek, speaker, you know. <laughs> There's a few little weird things that are tough. Like, for example, little corkscrews are okay in the U.S., but not in Europe. So I've, I've got a couple of little plastic corkscrews taken away from me. And laser pointers are not allowed on planes in Australia. So I had to sacrifice a laser pointer in Australia because they wouldn't let it on the plane. Oh, that's funny. I don't know what you're supposed to do with a laser pointer in the back of a plane, but for whatever reason, security theater didn't allow it. So. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you might make the pilot chaser on the, you know, <laughs> shine on the floor. I think it would be more dangerous outside the plane than in the back of the plane. <laughs> yeah, I've heard some stories that I don't quite believe about. Yeah, people uh, bringing down planes or helicopters or something because they're. Yeah, that would take a lot of laser power from a small thing. To yeah. Do that. But anyway, uh, but yeah, beyond that, nothing. I do have a really, really nice traveling backpack from this company, Book B O O Q. Uh, in fact, uh, I got one of these things several years ago and just love it. And 
gradually all the speakers that I bump into all the time are gradually getting book backpacks because they're really nice. They're very heavy. They're expensive, but they are industrial strength. And, and I think I'm qualified to say <laughs> <laughs> these things are almost indestructible. Big, wide, you know, double uh, stitch straps. And a really important thing for a backpack is to have a, a waist belt for it because that takes a lot of the pressure off your shoulders and that helps balance the weight of the bag a lot better. Mm-hmm. If you cinch it around your waist as well, so uh, it works really well for that. And yeah. it has a laptop compartment. And uh, you know, the, it just slides, it fits under your seat, just like anything else? Yep. Yeah, I've I've got a pretty nice backpack, and I'll admit that I got it for free. If you get a press pass to CES and they give out backpacks every year, but it doesn't have that waist cinch belt thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a handy thing to have, particularly if you're needing to jog through an airport. Uh, yes. Being able to cinch it to your waist keeps it under control. <laughs> yeah, I have a day pack that I'm not sure it would fit under the seat of an airplane. It's pretty close. It's a little bit bigger than your run-of-the-mill backpack. And, uh, yeah, it has, you know, all of the things that you're talking about and is very nice, but, huh, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that as well. Book bags are not for the faint of heart because they are very expensive. You're talking $300 for, you know, the top of the line backpack, but they are worth it. Yeah. And I, I really kind of want one of the ones that you can thread your power cords through and have a battery pack inside. So you just hook all your stuff up when you put it in and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they'd probably make some bags like that. They've got a pretty wide variety. And every bag of theirs I've seen has been really high quality. Huh. Definitely another thing to check out. So one last question. When you're working on site for a client, how do you usually get set up? Normally they will have uh, machines there for us and you know, uh, if it's a long-term engagement. Otherwise, we just use our laptops. But because if we're, a lot of the stuff I do now are things like technical assessments or kind of architectural uh, advice and consulting. And so typically we just use our own machinery there but in some cases they've got something set up for us so it's it's six one half does the other Mm. all right well i don't think i have any other questions so uh are there any aspects of travel that i didn't ask about uh i don't think so i think i covered most of my tips you know traveling lots one of those things that when you first start doing it it's awful and when when you reach a certain level it gets better because you get shorter lines and that kind of stuff one of my Guys that I know, uh, who's a really well-known consultant, Bruce Tate, a really well-known author, mm-hmm. uh, I think encapsulated this well because he used to be a traveling consultant. He said, the second happiest day of my life was when I finally achieved top-tier status on my airline, and the happiest day of my life is when I lost it again because I stopped traveling all the time. So mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's probably true. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things, that, you know, it's an occupational hazard for me, so I don't, it, I don't let it stress me out unduly. Uh, because it is an occupational hazard, I try to be very zen and kind of go with the flow. So I think a lot of people drive them crazy, just, you know, the the out-of-controlliveness of traveling so much. But uh, I've pretty much reconciled myself with it, and, and very rarely do I get mad enough so that the veins start sticking out of my foreheads. Yeah, I think it really just depends on how you, how you deal with it. And it's definitely not a lifestyle for everyone, but it's something, you know, I mean, if I had the right client, I'd, I'd travel for them. So Yeah, it, it has perks. I uh I'm a, I'm a kind of a foodie, so I take advantage, particularly to uh, for conference trips in Europe, to uh, eat at uh, gourmet restaurants there. So uh, I've gotten to eat at some super nice restaurants and didn't have to pay the travel to get there just for the food itself. So that's not a bad little perk. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that reminds me of a trip I took to Miami for RubyConf, and it just worked out that we wound up going to a really high-end 
restaurant. So I bought probably the most expensive meal I've ever bought in my life and just had the most wonderful, you know, it was like a local specialty crab and oh, it's so good. That's one of the things that I kind of had a, an epiphany about a few years ago is one of the things you can only do in places is eat at the restaurants that only exist in those places. Yeah. And that's one of the unique local things there. So I really try to embrace and find, you know, good local restaurants when I travel places. I'm a kind of an adventurous eater anyway, so I try to find really good local places. Try the local stuff. You never can tell. I mean, things that I'd never heard of before are now some of my favorite foods. So, you, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of... Try everything at least once. You don't have to like everything, but you have to try everything once because you never can tell. Well, the other thing is, is having lived in Europe, I know that certain areas or regions have regional specialties. Absolutely. So there are definitely things to try out there that you're really never going to be able to get anywhere else. Yep. Spargel is a great example of that. Uh, Albino asparagus, which is huge in Europe, and uh, every fall they have spargel season, and uh, you can actually find it sometimes in the U.S. It's albino asparagus, and it tastes like asparagus that the volume has been turned down on. So it makes really good, like, cream of asparagus soup because it has a very subtle flavor. And I never would have found that if I hadn't been going to Germany. That's, that just sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. I've got a couple of picks, just things that, you know, we've talked about in the travel. So uh, I have some mesh bags that I've used for my clothing and things, and they're really handy. They come in all kinds of sizes. The ones that I bought were the Rick Steves ones. He's a travel guide, writer, person. He kind of specializes in Europe, but he has his own podcast and things like that. He has a PBS television show where he talks about, you know, different areas of Europe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll probably, you know, I'll pick his show and then I'll also pick those. A few other things that I travel with, I have a larger battery pack that will actually charge my computer. And then it has a USB plug on it, and it'll charge my phone like six or seven times before it runs out of juice. It's rather large, so I usually only use it in emergencies, you know, when it's like, okay, I'm going to pull this honking thing out. But it's small enough to fit in my backpack. It's smaller than my laptop, but it's a little bit bigger than, say, the phone-sized battery packs that, you know, you can get two charges on your phone out of. And I don't remember the brand, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then I I also have an Anchor, that's A-N-K-E-R, battery pack for my phone. And that's also pretty handy. So if I need to charge it up, then I just plug it in. Usually in February, my father-in-law takes us all down to the Parade of Homes home show in St. George, which is in southern Utah. That's where all of the people who have made their wealth in northern Utah and Idaho retire to because it's warmer. Um, It's like the, you know, the people who migrate to Arizona every year during Mm -hmm. the winter. So, um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of the homes that you walk through are, you know, two million, three million dollar homes. And, uh, yeah. So when we go down there, I'll have that battery pack and I usually wind up charging my phone, my wife's phone and my sister-in-law's phone <laughs> while we're down there because, you know, we're, we're using it to navigate. We're using it to get around. We're using it to, you know, to look up restaurants and things like that. And so the, you know, the batteries get run down. And so mm-hmm. it's just really handy because. As I said, you know, I can use it to charge up my phone and then I can use it to charge up each of their phones. And that's usually about all it's got, but just a handy thing. We have a traveler's mantra, ABC, always be charging. Yes. (laughs) And it's handy, you know, when I'm traveling all day in the airports too, which doesn't happen very frequently to me. But those are the times when it really gets, you know, run down is, you know, you don't have enough time to sit down and charge it on your layover. 
and they really don't have it set up so you can charge it in the airplane. And so, you know, having right, something like that is handy. Increasingly now, the, the economy comfort seats in the front of the plane have uh, plugs that so you can charge stuff, but it's uh, that takes a newer plane to get that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, what are your picks? Uh, well, I mentioned Travelsmith. That's a really good site to go to. There's another great site called smartertraveler.com. It's an aggregation of travel stories, particularly things like uh, frequent flyer programs and changes to hotel policies and things like that. So it lets you keep your kind of ear to what's going on. Uh, and then the kind of classic ultimate place to find out things about miles is Flyer Talk, which is a, a forum that a lot of discussion forums around frequent flyer miles. So there's a, a formulation, you know, you're always curious about, you know, should I use frequent flyer miles for this flight or not? You know, am I getting a good deal with frequent flyer miles? So uh, Flyer Talk will let you give you the dollar value for your airline's miles so that you can make calculations about, you know, should I use miles for this or not? Uh, so that's a really useful site. Very cool. Well, I don't think I have any other announcements or anything like that, so uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Neil. Absolutely. My pleasure. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at MadGlory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.